You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about feeding concerns in children. I'm joined by Dr. Colleen Lukens, a psychologist, and Dr. Sherry Cohen, a pediatrician, both in the CHOP Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Center. So occasionally in primary care, I will see a toddler around 12 to 14 months old who's still refusing solid foods and primarily drinks milk from a bottle. Patients like this are also often overweight, iron deficient, and or constipated. It's likely that this patient would already have worked with a speech therapist through early intervention, but often they aren't specialized in feeding. So at this point, I would refer to the feeding clinic. So Dr. Lukens and Cohen, I am so happy that you're here to help tell me what your first steps would be in the approach to a patient like this. Thanks, Katie. When we see any patient in the feeding center, the first step is to identify factors that have contributed to the development and maintenance of the feeding problem. These are the things that, if left untreated, will continue to have an adverse impact on a child's feeding development, regardless of the modality of intervention, and will prevent the child from achieving their feeding goals. But this is often not the chief complaint that's raised by the family, and these factors are often not readily evident. So we need to take a stepwise progression. The first visit is really about understanding the feeding disorder and what has contributed to it. We tell families that this is the figure it out visit. We try to help them understand why their child is refusing to eat in the way that they want. So for this specific patient, some initial steps are to establish that oral motor and swallowing function are adequate and safe. And this is done by our speech pathologist. We wanna make sure that mechanical or anatomic factors are not contributing to the food refusal or the bottle dependence. We also want to address medical concerns. So for this patient, we want to address concerns about overweight status and nutritional deficiencies as quickly as possible. Seemingly, appetite is good here, but satisfied by excessive bottle drinking. So we might first consider transitioning to a low-calorie nutritious beverage, for example, Pediasure Sidekicks. And this is often the fastest way to improving nutrition and health, given that eating behavior change is very slow. But we do want to start with some behavior change, so we would recommend that the family limit access to the bottle. As long as he has access to his preferred way of getting his nutrition, there will be no motivation for him to eat anything else. And so, in addition, we would consider referral to a gastroenterologist. So what about this case would prompt a referral to GI? Are you thinking about something like eosinophilic esophagitis? That's a great question. I'm most concerned about eosinophilic esophagitis in kids like this who have never accepted solids. We see many patients who are reliant on the bottle, but also, for example, might eat crunchy snack foods. I'm less worried that kids like that have esophageal disease, and I'm more worried about kids who have truly never accepted anything chewable. Unfortunately, there's not clear evidence in the literature to support which kids with feeding disorders are more likely to have an abnormal endoscopy. So I think it's best to have a relatively low threshold for referral because working on oral feeding in a child with undiagnosed reasons for physical discomfort can actually worsen the aversion. That's a great point that we have to get at whatever the underlying cause may be if there is one. 
Now, you mentioned behavioral changes and making recommendations to parents about cutting back on milk intake and eliminating things like grazing to increase hunger cues can be easier said than done. And if these patterns have been going on for a while, which in a toddler they likely have, it can be hard to change these patterns. So what's your approach to patients who have disruptive or challenging feeding behaviors? The very first step is to provide a rationale for this recommendation. Again, we want to help families understand that if the child continues to have unlimited access to the bottle, there won't be any motivation to eat. As well, we want to provide nutrition education to help alleviate any worries the parent might have about withholding food or withholding the bottle. Then next, we discuss the behavior problems the child will likely demonstrate as a result of this change in parent behavior. We want families to know what to expect, and we equip them as best we can in preparation for that change. Then we work with the family to identify any current behavioral or developmental supports that are already in place and mobilize those for feeding help. We really like to work on a consultation basis with in-home providers. But if no behavioral supports are available, we start parent education about tolerating what we call the extinction burst or escalation in the challenging behavior. We teach them some basic behavior management strategies and what to expect when they try these things. And this is not much different than the anticipatory guidance that's provided around basic behavior management in the primary care setting. I was just going to say that this is great because it feels just like what we do in primary care. So it's nice to hear that we're on the same page. Right. So throughout this case, we've heard a variety of your team-based approaches to feeding challenges, and we're so lucky to have a multidisciplinary feeding clinic at CHOP. But for those who haven't interacted with your feeding clinic, can you tell us about the various disciplines that come together to evaluate or manage these patients and what the visit looks like for a family? Our clinic visits include physicians, nurse practitioners, dietitians, speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, and psychologists for kids who are at least about 10 months old cognitively. We conduct our assessment in two parts, so it's not too overwhelming for the family. So medical and nutrition will go in together. I do a basic history and physical, looking for medical issues that can impact feeding. The dietitian does a 24-hour diet recall, looking for micro and macro nutrient deficiencies to assess the child's nutritional status. The therapists go in together and they do a meal observation. The speech pathologist is not primarily looking at language or communication, but rather chewing, swallowing, swallow safety. For a patient like the one you described, it's very unlikely that there's a skill deficit contributing to their feeding issues. They appear to have an intact swallow, and any chewing delays are likely secondary to a lack of experience with chewable foods, and that's probably why they weren't making much progress with the early intervention speech pathologist. Our occupational therapists look at posture, positioning, self-feeding, and sensory issues. If a child has meals on the sofa, for example, they're going to be spending a lot of energy just maintaining their postural stability, and they're going to have trouble focusing on the feeding. The psychologist will look at mealtime structure, refusal behaviors, and parent-child interactions. The full team then comes back together to discuss our findings and formulate a collaborative plan, which we discuss with the family. So the whole process takes about two or two and a half hours. And then in most cases at the end of the visit, we do have to help the family reframe the feeding issue. So like the patient above, we might have to help them see that addressing the feeding issues requires that stepwise progression. So we're not necessarily starting with chewable or solid foods. We've got to start with some of those precursors we discussed and also helping the family to see that they have to take care of the contributors in order to optimize success with any future therapeutic recommendations. That's great. That's a really thorough evaluation. I love how you kind of close the loop at the end too for the family to bring everything together from that session. So 
Besides the food refusal case that we just talked about, what are some common referrals that you see from primary care? Common reasons for referral to our team include picky eating, difficulty with texture progression, food refusal, limited and inconsistent oral intake, and that can lead to malnutrition and or reliance on a supplement by mouth or by tube, and concerns about swallow safety. And I imagine that there are some major feeding milestones that we should be aware of, things that if they're not being met should prompt a referral. So for example, if you're not eating solids by a certain age or drinking from cup by another age, can you give me some examples of those major milestones that I should know of? Unfortunately, there is not consensus among feeding experts on when to refer, but I go by the following general rules of thumb. And all the ages that I mentioned are developmental ages, not chronologic ages. Most kids are not developmentally ready for spoon feeds until about six months of age, and we typically expect progression to table foods by about 12 months of age, and that's also when most kids are ready to transition from bottle to cup drinking. But these are general markers, not failure points requiring immediate referral. If you're ever wondering if a patient would benefit from seeing our team, you can always reach out to me to discuss the patient prior to referral. I'm happy to take emails from CHOP providers, and people outside of CHOP can reach me through 1-800-TRY-CHOP. Great. Thank you so much for that. So there are many feeding challenges that we hear about in primary care that we handle before a patient might need a referral to feeding clinic. So let's talk about a few of those and make sure that we're offering patients the right advice before they end up with you. So many parents report picky eating and describe a diet that includes little other than chicken nuggets, french fries, pancakes, and sweets, of course. So how can parents use positive strategies to increase acceptance of new foods? Katie, we wholeheartedly support starting with some basic strategies in the primary care office. (laughs) But if these strategies aren't working, there might be something else that's contributing and at that point maybe make the referral for multidisciplinary assessment. Alternatively, you can at least consider consultation from an outpatient dietitian if there are questions about the child's nutritional stability. So if there are questions about micronutrient deficiency or details like that. In terms of the picky eating, I also agree positive strategies are the way to go. So for example, we encourage families to keep their expectations to eat typical portion sizes at bay. We want them to really recognize the small steps. So instead, we encourage them to focus on exposure. This can be as simple as placing small amounts of new or non-preferred foods on the plate besides the foods that they're willing to eat for their meal. And this helps them increase their tolerance of the sensory properties of the foods. And families can even elicit their child's help in preparing meals or shopping for family meals to promote that exposure. Differential attention is also key. So providing really high levels of attention and praise for good eating behavior and limiting attention to problematic mealtime behavior is a really simple strategy for improving eating. And finally, we encourage families to exercise patience. We help them understand that as long as weight is stable, they do not have to give in to those requests for snack foods in replacement for more nutritionally sound foods. Those are great tips. And I often tell parents when you were mentioning reassuring them that if parents are modeling healthy habits and keeping those healthy foods available in the home, that eventually their children will come around. And so when parents are feeling frustrated, like they can't do anything right, the parent eating healthy in front of the child and modeling that can also just be a great example that will set them up for healthy life skills in the future. Exactly. So 
Once babies start finger-feeding themselves, parents may report that their baby overstuffs their mouth. I hear this a lot. And even if they're only giving a few items at a time, they realize that their baby is pocketing the food in their cheek and not swallowing before stuffing in more food. So how should they handle this to prevent choking? In this case, we teach families to pace their child. I think feeding feels like it should be so natural and requires so little intervention, but so much of early feeding learning depends on the caregiver reading the child's cues and responding appropriately. It is great for the baby to start feeding themselves, but if they're getting themselves into trouble, it's very reasonable for the family to gently pull the food away, encourage an empty mouth, and provide food again in small amounts once the child has swallowed the food. But again, as we mentioned earlier, if some of these basic strategies aren't working, it might be time to consider that referral to the multidisciplinary team. Right. I think as Dr. Cohen mentioned earlier, when we were talking about food refusal, I can imagine that there are cases like this where it could be something like you mentioned, eosinophilic esophagitis, where there is actually some pathology and it's not just behavioral. Right. So many parents get in the habit of becoming like a 24-hour diner, making one meal for the parents and then individual different meals for the children based on their preferences. Is there harm in this approach or should the whole family eat the same meal? That's a great question. (laughs) And there is so much middle ground here and really no hard and fast rules. We encourage shared responsibility. For example, the parent chooses the main meal, but maybe each member of the family can choose their own vegetable or offering a choice of two things to eat at a meal rather than unlimited choices. Narrowing things down and creating boundaries can be so beneficial for young children in all areas, including their feeding. Great. Those are great points. And then there's another thing that often happens, which is when I'm seeing patients with feeding challenges that I think could have a component of reflux, I often think about medically treating their reflux before referring to the feeding clinic. Is that something that your team would prefer us to start in primary care or should we hold off on medically managing feeding problems until they're evaluated by your comprehensive team? I think you should absolutely go ahead and treat in primary care. It's controversial how much reflux impacts feeding issues, but I think if you have reasons to be concerned about it, then doing a trial of medication for reflux can be really helpful for when they come in to see us to kind of already have that looked at. Great. So, Tell us a little bit about where we can find the feeding clinic. Where are you? And what's the best way to refer patients to you? We have clinics in Seashore House every day, King of Prussia on Wednesdays, and in Virtua, New Jersey on Thursdays. Our intensive therapy program is only at Seashore House, and all kids have to come through clinic before they can be considered for the intensive program. We have an intake process that can be started by the family calling 267-425-3333. CHOP providers can also enter a consult order in EPIC and our staff will reach out to the family. And again, don't ever hesitate to reach out to me directly to discuss specific patients. I'm always happy to do that. Thank you so much to both of you. This was really educational for me and I know a lot of people in primary care. We have so many feeding issues that we see and it's so great to have a resource like you available to us at CHOP for our patients. So thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.